0: we <laughs> Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the major third-party directories. And you can also check out my blog, and that's cagerredux.com, C a g e r r e d u x All right. Today is a day full of twos. It is uh, 2-22-22, February 22nd, 2022. Two And I'm just going to do a quick episode on something that happened this weekend. And I I normally don't uh, do episodes that are reactive to specific events unless they relate to the broader themes of the podcast. And this one is a tricky one because it's really uh, message board material, and it is ESPN talk show screaming back and forth material and op-ed material. But I think it does raise some important themes. I'm talking about the... The scuffle or the melee, however you want to characterize it, between the Michigan and Wisconsin coaches and then players. And it was just a, a mess all the way around in this game on Sunday. And it was interesting because I was out of town. I was visiting my daughter out of state. and I spent the weekend with a whole bunch of 20-somethings, and you get a, a different perspective on the world. And here in my day-to-day life in North Carolina, I can pretty much isolate myself to focus on the things that I think are important and I can put the blinders on. And I really try to avoid getting caught up in all of the noise out there on the internet and in the sports broadcast media that is designed to compete for attention. And in uh, today's world, you have to be pretty persistent and pretty aggressive in competing for attention because there's a lot of stuff out there. But I I was actually in Austin, Texas. That's where my daughter lives and works. And there's a lot going on in Austin. It is a high octane city and there is never a dull moment. But despite all of my focus on these big picture issues, and the regulation of college sports and what's happening in Congress, what's happening in uh, federal litigation and state legislatures and, and all these moving parts, I found myself just getting sucked right into that message board mentality. It just speaks to the power of human nature. And we are so influenced by the environment that we find ourselves in. And I had people who know what what I'm doing. Uh, they were asking me, what do you think? What do you think? I'm there looking at the video, trying to come up with something profound to say. And I was pretty much just reacting to it the way that most people do. And I had an emotional reaction that was a product of my personal experience and my life experience and my understanding of kind of the rules of etiquette and the unwritten rules in the game of basketball. But on the backside of that, when I got out of that mentality and I was thinking about it critically and looking at what it says about the leadership in college sports. I thought it was worth an episode, a bridge episode, because I'm going out of town again. And before I get back into these big picture issues with the constitutional committee and the transformation committee and all these weighty moving parts that are going to determine the future of college sports, I thought I would uh, just check in with this single event and uh, share my thoughts on, on what I think it means and how it's relevant to the future of college sports. So there was this incident in the post-game handshake line that had a Jerry Springer quality to it. And it was really just cringeworthy, but there was a a conflict between the coaching staffs and it could have turned into a really dangerous situation. And fortunately, it did not. And the head coaches went after each other and it got physical. There was a lot of he said, she said, but in, in a nutshell, you had two coaches behaving badly and doing some really stupid stuff. I just don't know if there's any other way to put it. Joan Howard, the head coach for the University of Michigan, took umbrage at the fact that the Wisconsin coach, Greg Gard, called a timeout with 15 seconds left in a game that had already been decided. Wisconsin was up 13, 14 points, something like that. And he cleared his bench and he had his uh, reserves and some walk-ons on the floor at the time. Michigan still had their starting players on the floor. There are some unwritten rules. in in the game of basketball. And I'll just say this. I don't talk about it a lot, but I played uh, college basketball. I I played at Duke in the early 80s. And I am familiar with the unwritten rules of basketball and the gentleman's understanding about how you manage games in different situations. And I have been uh, connected to basketball in one way or another for most of my life. So I have some insight into what transpired and some of my reading between the line, I think is well informed. There's this sort of understanding between teams competing that in a game where the the uh, final outcome has been determined, clearly determined, before the final horn sounds, then both coaches make some decisions that acknowledge that reality. And if you're winning, then you uh, don't uh, pursue y- your offensive opportunities aggressively. You play containment defense. You probably empty your bench if the score warrants it, and it did in this case. And you just uh, politely Let the game expire and just get it over and then move on. If you are the losing. Team, you have a little more flexibility because some coaches want to coach to the final whistle and to challenge their teams. And so the expectations there are a little bit different. But look, if you are down 13 and you got 15 seconds, you probably don't want to be pressing. And Michigan looked to me like they were. The head coach denied that after the game. He said they weren't pressing. They were just in their full court, man to man. I'm not quite sure what that meant. I think he was trying to to duck that issue. But yeah, they were pressing and probably not a, a great move there. So so there was a little bit of, of a breach on both sides so you had Michigan pressing in a game that's already been decided on the defensive side then you had Wisconsin taking a timeout on the offensive side and the Wisconsin coach's explanation for that was that his his reserves his walk-ons didn't know how to break Michigan's press and they needed some instruction <laughs> there were some timing issues too because they had, you normally have 10 seconds to cross the half court line when you bring the ball in, but because of that particular possession, they only had four seconds to do it. I guess there were some breaches, some technical breaches on both sides, but nothing that warranted all out war. In the handshake line, the Michigan coach, Jawan Howard, was upset. He thought that timeout was really rubbing salt in the wound. And Michigan is. Uh, struggling a little bit this year and they have to win some big games down the stretch here I think to qualify for the NCAA tournament so this team is under enormous pressure and Jawan Howard is under enormous pressure as all big time coaches would be in that circumstance so Howard's probably a little sensitive and guard apparently wasn't tuned into that as he should be anyway so Howard just decides and, and again this is not a mature thing to do what happens this kind of thing happens where coach is upset and he doesn't really want to give the opposing coach the courtesy of a handshake and they kind of brush each other off. But Howard was just looking straight ahead, walking by. He was just going to walk by guard when they were passing each other. Howard said something under his breath, I'm not going to forget this. And and this meaning that timeout. Guard then physically grabs Howard, kind of gets in his path and then they start exchanging words. It's not clear what all was said. We don't have a transcript and both coaches didn't really elaborate on what they had to say to each other. But it turned into finger pointing and then they had to be pulled apart. And then a Wisconsin assistant coach comes in behind the head coach and he says something and not clear what it was. And then Howard reaches through with his uh, right hand and he punches or slaps or strikes or whatever you want to call it his right hand makes contact with the wisconsin assistant coach and then all hell breaks loose and the players are going at it and the security people and the people at the scorers table and to the credit of many of the players we're trying to get everybody separated And it was just a terrible look. It was just one of these situations that was so unnecessary and so inappropriate that you really. Didn't know how to respond to it. You're looking at it and and you're saying, What the hell just happened here? It's not unusual for things to get a little bit chippy between the players. Having two coaches go at it, that's a little bit outside of the box. And of course, the video goes viral and everybody's got an opinion. Everybody thinks they see something that nobody else sees. Everybody's an expert, but so much of this is governed just by human nature and the way that we we respond to these kinds of things. So, We had all the experts reviewing the film. And I think there was a consensual understanding that there was fault on both sides here and Guard overstepped his bounds by physically forcing Howard to have a conversation. Howard lost his cool and clearly crossed the line when he uh, punched or swiped or slapped, whatever you want to call it, an opposing coach. So I, I want to talk about what happened on Sunday on three different levels. First, I want to talk about some history in basketball, not just college basketball, but the basketball broadly and the evolution of the game from its inception, its founding in the late 19th century. And as we all know, Dr. James Naismith, who was a physical education teacher, invented the game in the early 1890s. The way that the game evolved is really interesting when it comes to the physicality of the game and the relationship between The players and the coaches and then the relationship between the participants and and the fans. Second, I want to talk about this incident through the lens of the sports fan and the sports media and how it was processed and how people talked about it. And there are some interesting questions that came up that I think are good fodder for message boards and chatter in these screaming back and forth sports Uh, talk shows and radio shows and and all that stuff. But I think in the final analysis, none of that is important because there is an overarching problem with the way that we have framed this case and and the way that we think about the participants in the entertainment product, the, the people who actually produce it, the coaches and the players who provide the actual entertainment product. And their, their relationship to the institutional interests that essentially uh, stage it and then benefit from the entertainment value of the product. And I think we have simply lost sight of the true nature of that relationship. And, and then the third, and I think the most important issue, is where were the university presidents on this? Where was... Wisconsin-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank. Where was Michigan University President Mary Sue Coleman? They simply were AWOL on this. And I think that's a really important issue because they are the captains of the ship. And university presidents and chancellors, notably Rebecca Blank and Mary Sue Coleman, have put themselves out there. On, on these values-based issues and the right relationship between the big-time college sports products and the values of higher education and all of the institutional principles that protect those values. And in this situation, these two decision makers should have been front and center to carry the banner for the values they claim to hold. And as I'm going to talk about here in a little bit, these two decision makers are not just any garden variety university chancellor or president. These are two of the most connected, powerful, in-system decision makers when it comes to college sports. And neither of these leaders has been shy to express their opinion on the importance of maintaining the values of higher education through intercollegiate athletics. And whether it's testifying for the NCAA in antitrust cases or testifying before Congress or holding positions at the highest level in NCAA governance or through external advocacy groups like the Knight Commission or affiliations with organizations like the Association of American Universities, these two leaders have used all of those platforms to preen and pose and talk about the values of higher education and that they have to drive the big-time university's relationship to college sports. And over the years, they've spouted the party line on presidential control and institutional control over intercollegiate athletics. And the university presidents demanded that control. And that came through the Knight Commission's work in the late 80s and early 90s and in the mid 90s through this governance makeover they began sitting in the decision-making chairs at the ncaa and since 2003 University presidents former university presidents have been the president of the ncaa So the presidents are supposed to be in charge of this whole shooting match at the values level yet when presented with a perfect opportunity to speak to the importance of those values, these two university leaders decided to take the day off. They called in sick. And I I think that is the story, the unreported story to come out of this whole pile of mess. So I want to start with what I think is the fun stuff. And this is a look back at the history of college basketball and its uh, relationship to less than ideal interactions among the participants and between the participants, the coaches, and the fans. And I'm not offering this up to excuse what happened on Sunday because what happened was inexcusable and there's no justification for it. And I think there are some 30,000 foot misconceptions that people have about the sport of basketball, particularly at the highest levels in college and uh, throughout the professional leagues. And that is that basketball is a quote-unquote non-contact sport. And that's simply not the case. It is incredibly physical. And these people are, are big. There are some big bodies that move with lightning quickness in a really a small space when you compare the space to the size of the participants. And I'll just say again, I played for Duke in the early 1980s. And when you're on the court with athletes of that the size, speed, and caliber of what you find in, in the ACC or in, in any you know Power Five conference. It feels like a combat zone. And the physicality of the game, I think, is masked by the beauty of it. And there's a choreographed beauty to, to the game of basketball at the highest levels. And these players make things look easy, very difficult things look easy. But when you're actually out there on the court in the combat zone, nothing's easy. Every pass is challenged. Every dribble is important. There are, the differences between success and failure in completing a pass or getting a, a quality shot are measured in millimeters, not inches. It It is a game of extraordinarily small margins of error. And unless you have experienced that it's hard to understand and you can just get way late in an ordinary routine basketball play that is within the rules of the game you can find yourself on your back wondering what the hell just happened it happens all the time. it is an extraordinarily physical game and when you got a bunch of bodies like that you get you got guys six six to seven feet tall who weigh 220 to 250 pounds and they are moving like point guards. It's intimidating. It just is intimidating. And I've seen that through the eyes of a 5'9", 155-pound point guard. And uh, if you're going to take a a mere mortal's body into that arena, you got to be ready to to take some hits. And boy, did I. I mean, heading well into my late mid-life and I'm an orthopedic train wreck and I got scars everywhere and because the true physicality of the game is masked by its beauty and and the skill of the players at the highest level, I think a lot of fans and casual observers who who enjoy the game for its beauty and its ballet-like quality. Really jarred when they see that transform into true violence and tempers flare and things get out of control. And if you could experience the game from the inside out rather than from the outside in, you may very well come away asking yourself why there aren't more of uh, these kinds of incidents, both uh, during the game or, or surrounding the game, because there is just intense competition and that fine line between the fire that makes you a great player, coach, or team, and the fire that burns your house down is very fine. It is a very fine line. And... I think when this happens in football, people expect that because football is a sport defined by its violence. When it happens in ice hockey, people expect it as part of the the game, It's part of the allure. People go to a hockey game thinking, hey, maybe there's going to be a big fight and everybody's happy and okay. And those guys are wearing pads. So it's not that big of a deal. When it happens in basketball, I think people have a much different reaction because their expectations of what the game is don't correspond to the reality of the physicality and sometimes the violence of the game. And uh, no doubt this was coach to coach. So this is a much different scenario. But in those other sports, in football and in hockey, there is a a good fund of precedent for open physical altercations, not just between uh, opposing coaches, but between coaches on the same coaching staff and between coaches and players on the same team. And that happens every once in a while. And the mainstream response to it is, yeah, that's stupid. It's unfortunate. But fans look at that the way that uh, people look at, at a car wreck. You just can't help but look. You're rubbernecking. And there's an element of voyeurism there and are appealing to our worst instincts. But the, the sports entertainment complex plays on that because it has market value so let me talk about those dynamics in the game of basketball and this goes back to the very first rules of the game drafted by James Naismith and if you're a basketball fan you know the story Dr. Naismith was a physical education teacher and he was uh, looking for some way to entertain students through an indoor PE activity when the weather was bad and he came up with the basic idea of of basketball and had some original rules of the game. And he was playing this game at the local YMCA with young kids this was not intended to be a physical sport but one of the original rules of the game is that when the ball went out of bounds the first team to get possession of it to get to the ball and gain possession of it kept possession of it there, there was no uh, understanding that if the ball went out of bounds some third party was going to decide uh, who got the ball a ball out of bounds was a free ball and it went to the the person who got there first or the person who fought the hardest for it. And as the game of basketball became more popular and it expanded into other venues and other environments, you still had this rule that was part of the the game. And in the late 19th century, the late 1890s, and then really up until the 19. 30s, you had games being played in these very small spaces, particularly in the Northeast. This was really more of a Northeast dynamic in how the game was played. And it was more open in other places. And some of that's just the limitations of space and form follows function and all that stuff. But uh, you had these games being played in uh, church halls, in, in basements, in small spaces with dimensions that are much smaller actually than the, the court is today. And the the, a regulation basketball court is 94 feet long by 50 feet wide and it seems like that's a big space it's really not when you have massive human beings occupying that space but you had very closed spaces and the because of that the relationship between the participants and the fans was much different and early on with this rule that the ball was fair game when it went out of bounds, you had teams literally fighting for the ball in the stands and then fans would get involved. And there were fights and brawls all the time. And it really became disruptive and fans were interfering with the game and they were reaching into the area of play and interfering with the baskets. And so in the Northeast, uh, these venues got the brilliant idea to put essentially a cage around the playing area to separate the fans from the players. And that physical space resembled literally a combat zone, like a boxing ring or what we see now with MMA cages or professional wrestling even. So you have this enclosed quality. You have 10 people just going at it. There were fights all the time. And It was not a gentleman's game. It was a wide-open free-for-all, and that was part of the attraction of the game at those venues in the Northeast. And that combat-oriented quality really became a, a draw for the game, and fans really liked it. And in the early 20th century, sports writers started referring to basketball players as cagers. And I've had people ask me why I named my blog CagerRedux.com. That's a play on the use of the word cager to describe basketball players. And that word was in use in sports writing really into the 1970s. When I was in high school in the late 1970s, some of the sports writers that were covering the teams that I played on they, they referred to us as cagers occasionally. And everybody knew what that was. I don't know if they knew the history, but they knew that cagers equaled basketball players. And I've always loved that term, which is why I tried to resurrect it a little bit through my blog. And uh, it, it would be interesting to look from a sociological standpoint and a kind of a cultural anthropological standpoint at how college fans react to these different sports. And football, obviously, it's a sport of violence. But it's a on a large playing area, and you have the participants wearing protective gear and all that. And I think as basketball was mainstreamed and you had other parts of the country that played a style that's more similar to what we see today and in, in an environment that's more similar to what we see today, you had mainstreaming towards that model. And as it gained traction as a college sport, I think you had the... Values of higher education influence the nature of the game and the rules of the game. And I would say up until the 1960s, there were some pretty well-known brawls, basketball brawls that took place, some here in my neck of the woods on Tobacco Road. And those aren't viewed as pockmarks on the game of basketball. They are viewed as events that add color to the game. And then one more thing I would add to that that I think influences the interactions of the participants and the coaches in basketball is that it is really an intimate sport. And when I say intimate, it's in a small space. You have 10 people sharing that space. There is no anonymity. You see everything. You see the body language, the subtle gestures. There is a level of communication that exists in the game of basketball that doesn't exist in football or hockey, where you really are anonymous in many ways. And I, I think that the intimacy of the game of basketball is uh, an important distinguishing feature because the players are connecting literally body to body, skin to skin. In and football and, and hockey or, or the other kind of contact sports, you don't really have that and i think that influences how uh, players respond to each other at an emotional level and i think the nature of that physicality sometimes lends itself to uh, a, a more immediate and dramatic response than other forms of contact in other sports so uh, let me move on to the the second level of analysis and that is how this was portrayed in real time by the sports media. And a number of questions came up immediately that tended to dominate the discussion. And so much of this goes to what I call the message board issues where people are yelling and screaming uh, back at each other about what's important, what's not, what really happened, what really didn't. And that type of discussion about issues in the sports world is fueled by the format. A lot of the broadcast media outlets and ESPN's a great example. So much of their commentary on sports, and I'm talking here about college sports, is done in this panel screaming match kind of format because it has market value and people like to see yelling back and forth. So I want to look at some of these issues that came up. And one of the things that I found interesting was uh, word choice and language. And that's important. That's really important in how the issues framed, how the uh, issues are presented, and how the word choice may influence how people respond to it at, a, at an emotional level, a subconscious level. So the first question is, what exactly happened? Was it a scuffle or a brawl? Was it an, an encounter Or a melee? Was it a disturbance or a free-for-all? And those things are really in the eyes of the beholder. But I think it was really interesting. I, I think you could tell that these word choice issues were kind of a barometer on how the writers perceived the event. And if it was a scuffle, you tended to want to minimize what happened. if it was a brawl, you think this was just a crime against the game of basketball. And then in a similar vein, what was Howard's physical contact with the opposing coach a punch or a swipe? Was it an open-handed connection or a closed fist? I think how the commentators used language here and, and word choice really suggests a, a, a way that you should be thinking about this. And if it was a punch, then this guy's a rogue basketball coach and we need to bring the hammer down on him. If it was a swipe, it was nothing more than a gesture that crossed the line, but it really was no harm, no foul. And there's a lot of separation between those two characterizations. But, you know, the fact of the matter is when you watch the video, the coaches had been separated and Howard had been pulled back and and Guard and the assistant coach that that Howard made contact with, they were pretty far apart. And Howard kind of reaches through and and, and gets a a piece of the guy. But I don't think there's any suggestion that it caused any physical harm. And then let's see, the other question, and this isn't, I think, relevant at least, who, who made the first move here? What was the first touch? Was there a provocation? And in my judgment, and again, this is through my lens, and I, my lens is as biased as anybody else by my life experience and the way that I see college sports and the game of basketball and all that stuff. I think that guard really was the initiator of the physicality of that encounter. John Howard, I think, had made the decision. He was just going to walk by guard and diss him, throw some shade at him by not talking to him and not shaking his hand. And he made some comment under his breath about, I'm not going to forget this, not exactly fighting words, quite frankly. But then guard comes in and physically touches Howard, stops his his pathway off the court, and really forces an encounter. And I think that was really where things started to escalate. But w- when I saw that, I understand how Howard could have reacted negatively to that. And who does guard think he is in, in that moment? where he felt like he had the authority to physically confront Howard and force a conversation that Howard obviously didn't want to have, he elevated himself to a position of superiority that's not warranted by his place in the basketball world. And I was influenced in part by something that happened last year, and seven of the Wisconsin basketball players, all the seniors on the team, had a sit-down with uh, Coach Guard because they were really unhappy with how he was managing the team. And they thought he was not really connected to the team or to the individual players. And they were really diswrought by this. And they felt isolated. They felt like Guard was elevating his personal interests over the interests of, of the team and the players. And it, it took on an ugly turn because uh, one of the athletes taped the conversation. It got released. And then the discussion turned into whether or not the conversation should have been uh, recorded rather than what the athletes were actually saying and ultimately wisconsin didn't do anything with it but six of the seven players who were part of that meeting left wisconsin three transferred i think and then three pursued professional opportunities and, and i think that suggests that there's a problem there that guard needs to address and that wisconsin needs to be mindful of and i what i saw in his domineering approach to in in his encounter with Howard was that kind of self absorption and it was clear that Howard didn't want to have any interaction with Guard in that handshake line whether that was the right thing to do or not again is in the eyes of the beholder but you would hope that Howard would would rise above that participate in the handshake line be uh, gracious and then deal with any problems he had with Guard through a conversation out of the heat of the moment that would have been ideal but it didn't go down that way, and one of the reasons it didn't go down that way was because of guards' intervention. And w- when I looked on the backside of that, I was thinking to myself, if if instead of Greg guard on the opposing bench, if this were a game between a say a John Wooden coached UCLA team or a Dean Smith coached North Carolina team or a John Thompson coached Georgetown team, or or in in the present tense, against Mike Krzyzewski coached a Duke team, or a Roy Williams coached UNC team, or a Leonard Hamilton coached Florida State team. And they stop Juwan Howard in the handshake line, even if Howard's pissed off about that timeout. Juwan Howard, doesn't get into a verbal confrontation with them. He is going to listen to every word they have to say because they're going to say something that is important to a young coach. If a coach of that caliber stops a younger coach in the handshake line, regardless of what transpired during the game, regardless of how the younger coach is feeling about the game, that coach would be a fool not to stop and drink in every word that one of those Hall of Fame coaches had to say. That's, that wasn't the circumstance here. This was Greg Gard pr- acting as if he had the stature of any of those legendary coaches. And I think there was an element of that in Howard's reaction. And of course, Howard's a competitive guy. The fire he has made him a great player. It could help make him a great coach if he understands how to employ that resource. And as I said earlier, fire can keep your house warm or it can burn it down. Depends on how you use it. And I think this is a teachable moment for Howard. And I hope a teachable moment for guard. But I would say for, for both of these coaches, Howard more, more than guard because Howard threw a punch, whatever you want to call it, a swipe. That looks so bad and is so bad that, that Howard turned his fate over to external decision makers. He basically put his career on the line in that moment. Guard to a lesser extent, although I think he's gotten a free pass. At the individual level, the penalty wasn't assessed against guard. The, Wisconsin was assessed a financial penalty because they, I guess, participated in the in the encounter. However, you want to describe it. Howard was suspended for the rest of the season, and he's going to get a hefty fine and, and all that. But I think that both of these guys, given their unique circumstances, they had a lot to lose, and they weren't playing with a strong hand to begin with because Michigan's not having a great year, and a lot of people had higher expectations and they're struggling. And guard, uh, although his team's doing well, uh, he has this history of some issues with player relations. So they weren't operating from a position of strength. And, and in different ways, they left their fate to the whim of external decision makers and of public opinion. And these guys are getting paid millions of dollars. And in different ways, they, they put that at risk. And that's that's the thing that really causes me some concern and On top of that, you had these people, Howard and Guard, and then the athletics director for Wisconsin at a post-game press conferences, really not showing that they understood the gravity of the situation. And Howard got a bunch of questions about what happened, and he offered a kind of a self-serving excuse. And then he just stiff-armed any follow-up questions, and it just didn't sound right. It didn't feel right. It didn't seem that he understood the significance of what happened out there and the need, the mandate for him to apologize and say that he he lost control of his emotions. He regrets what he did. He set a terrible example for his team. He'll take whatever punishment that comes and he will be working double time to make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. He didn't say that. And then you had guard behaving in a way, I think, that is precisely what those seven players saw last year and were really distressed by. And that is a guy who refused to accept any accountability or responsibility for his role in, in this case, in this encounter, or in his relationship with his team and his players. He omitted some of the most important facts relating to that encounter, and he made it appear as if he's just some guy walking through the handshake line who just gets waylaid by the opposing coach. That's not what happened. Guard and initiated the physical encounter. He stood between Howard and Howard's pathway forward. And then he arrogated to himself the position of a Hall of Fame coach. And he was going to tell Juwan Howard what was what. And then the Wisconsin athletics director, Macintosh, I can't remember his first name, He's sitting behind a microphone at at the press conference, and he's trying to make Wisconsin out to be the victim. And he's all on his high horse preaching down to Michigan. And it was just just a bad look all the way around. And I think given that those responses were woefully inadequate and misleading across the board, it was incumbent upon the decision makers at, at these two universities, not just the athletics directors, not just the Big Ten conference commissioner, they kind of punted it to the Big Ten. It was incumbent upon the presidents of these two universities to step forward and say, wait a minute, we have a problem here, and we are going to address it through the lens of the values we claim to hold That didn't happen. This was a, a, a perfect opportunity for these two uniquely situated college leaders who have an intimate understanding of the regulatory model in big time college sports and the business model in big time college sports and the values of higher education that are expressed through the institutional interest to step forward and say, we have a problem here and we're going to sit down. Wouldn't it be great if Mary Sue Coleman and Rebecca Blank held a joint press conference and said, we're not happy with the way this is this was handled. Here's how we want it handled and here is why. We got none of that. They were too busy hiding under their desks. We couldn't find them. And I'm going to talk about that a, a little more here in just a second. But we can talk about all of these nuances about the encounter and we can go through this whole list of of things and how you describe it with all, all these questions and from a game management standpoint sh- should you call a, a timeout with 15 seconds left when you're up 13? Should we, you be pressing, if you're the team that's behind, should be, should you be pressing when you're down 13 and there are 15 seconds left? Sh- should we have a certain code of conduct for the handshake line? Should there even be a handshake line? So we we, we have all these pressing questions that I think really miss the important issues here. And in in, in my judgment, there are a couple. One, who is in control of college sports right now. And that is a question that's plagued college sports, really going back to the early 20th century. And we had this model of presidential control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics, and I just don't see it. And this case is a perfect example of that. And the other point is, what are the values of higher education as they relate to big-time sports and the revenue-producing sports of football and men's basketball? We don't know. And we only get what comes out through the carefully manicured institutional interests at the NCAA governance level, then in the uh, their relationship with external regulators through the positions they take in litigation, the statements they make to Congress. And of course, we don't know what's really happening behind the scenes with all of this lobbying that, that the, the schools that these two presidents represent are actively engaged in through their conference entity. And then another overlay here is that there's a there's an unspoken race issue here because Howard is African-American, Guard is white. And I think a lot of African-Americans m- may look at that encounter and have a perspective on it and an interpretation of it that's influenced by their experience as African-Americans. And I, I'm not going to get into all of that uh, right now, but I'm bookmarking this event for my discussion about the race-related issues. And you have to be careful how you talk about that. And I'm going to do my best to to be attentive to all the concerns there. But I I think that issue is lingering out there. And I think that one of the the benefits that these presidents got in this particular situation, which had the potential to be viewed through uh, a racial lens, was that You had uh, primary decision-makers who were African-American. So the the Michigan Athletics Director, Ward Manuel, is African-American, and the commissioner of the Big Ten Conference is also African-American. He's the first African-American conference commissioner at the Power Five level. So he's breaking uh, ground here. And then you also had African-American members of the sports commentary at a couple at ESPN, one a former ESPN person, who all have been outspoken on racial issues. Kind of offering their opinion and their take on what happened and recommending punishments that wound up being adopted by the in-system stakeholder beneficiary. So these white presidents, both Kalman and Blank are white, and they got, I think, the benefit of some insulation here because the decision-makers, the ultimate decision-makers were uh, African-American. And then the external voices, the African-American voices that spoke on this issue spoke about it in a really, I think, productive, level-headed way. And I think you had all of those influences landing in the same place with the appropriate punishment. And if you have people on both sides of this discussion, the Wisconsin faithful and the Michigan faithful disagreeing with the punishment, I I think you could make the case that it was probably the right punishment. And in my experience as a litigator, I had some mediators say in their work, when both sides leave a settlement discussions and they agree to a settlement and both of them think that they got screwed then it was a pretty good settlement so i think there was an element of that with the punishment that was meted out but what i really want to drill down on in this second layer of analysis how this was processed through the sports and mainstream media and where it landed is it missing from this discussion is the reality of the context in which this occurred you had all of the propagandized values of college sports, the Norman Rockwell version, the amateurism-based model, the student-athlete, the scholar-athlete, the collegiate model, all of these things that have led the public to believe that the way that the participants in the entertainment product itself should interact with each other and behave should be governed by rules that are more akin to a Montessori kindergarten sportsmanship class than professional sports where the stakes are high. And there's a reason that uh, professional sports, some professional sports don't have the handshake lines. Because in that context, the reality of that business, that professional product, that commercial product is that if you lose, then you are... Putting yourself one step closer to the unemployment line or to a less valuable contract if you're a player that's obviously going to stay uh, in in the league, whatever league it is. So that's the reality of life at, at the professional level, and that is the truth of the Uh, big-time college sports products like football and men's basketball at the highest levels. These are professional products. And the truth is that the pressure that the the coaches and the players feel is more like the pressures that coaches and players feel in professional sports at the highest level than in uh, middle school or high school sports. And those pressures are the product of the realities of the big time business of college sports. And that distortion it just slips right through these kinds of situations. And people don't say, wait a minute, we're applying standards here that simply don't fit because this isn't an avocation. This isn't a recreational pursuit. This isn't An extracurricular activity and those are the ways that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have characterized the nature of college sports at the values level and those phrases I just uh, used were pulled directly from the old NCAA Constitution it's an avocation it's a hobby it is a recreational pursuit is it is an extracurricular activity no that's that's ridiculous on its face This is big business and the stakes for the institutional interests are substantial and the winning and the losing matters. And the institutional stakeholders have been lying about that reality, really going back to the earliest iterations of big time college football in the early 20th century. And I've talked about this some at the values level and in my early episodes, I referred to a book titled Sports and Freedom by uh, sports historian Ronald Smith, who I think is at Penn State still. He's an uh, emeritus professor. And he spoke at some length about what he called the amateur professional dilemma. And I think a a lot of fans understand this at an intuitive level, but when they're caught up in all the packaging and the pageantry and the false values that are expressed through all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, it's really easy to get sucked into that Norman Rockwell view of college sports. But Smith did a, a chapter titled Amateur College Sport." an untenable concept in a free and open society. And he described this amateur professional dilemma. And I just want to read a little bit from from his book. So so Smith says, to conduct athletics in a professional mode while calling them amateur was both a self-contradiction and an hypocrisy, a pretense at virtuous character without possessing Virtue. To call collegiate sport amateur was in fact play-acting, the ancient Greek definition of the term hypocrisy. Intercollegiate athletics, which had many virtues according to numerous individuals, was acting the part of amateur sport while playing like professional athletics. Thus, The amateur professional athletic dilemma developed. If a college had truly amateur sport, it would lose contests and thus prestige. If a college acknowledged outright professional sport, the college would lose respectability as a middle class or higher class institution. Be amateur and lose athletically to those who were less amateur. Be outright professional and lose esteem. The solution to the dilemma then was to claim amateurism to the world while in fact accepting professionalism. And that hypocrisy, this outward profession of amateur virtue to conceal a professionalized product, the most professionalized product that the market can accommodate, is alive and well in 2022. And despite everything that's happened in the last year and a half and the Austin decision and the, the nil market and the nil debacle and the failed congressional attempt to immunize the big-time college sports marketplace from external regulators. Despite all of those events and what appears to be a reckoning for college sports, you still have these same in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, including the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Michigan and their respective leaders, Rebecca Blank and Mary Sue Coleman, putting out the amateur lie for public consumption. and it, it is very seductive. And the power of that labeling and that messaging hasn't gone away. And, and we still haven't turned that corner, I don't think, at the values level, at the broad-based cultural values level. And that gives the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries a, an enormous advantage, I think, in, in messaging. And this kind of event i think reinforces that because we're not talking about this through the true stakes to the university of having a big time football or big time men's basketball why are the universities so invested in winning why are they spending so much money on these head coaches why are they putting provisions in the contracts that say that if these coaches are asked to leave and it's not because of misbehavior that the university has to pay tens of millions of dollars to those coaches to buy them out. And this absurd coaching carousel that occurred in college football in the last year and these ridiculous salaries that are designed specifically to ensuring or increasing the likelihood that The university is going to win more games than it it loses, bring more prestige to the university than not, to enhance the power of the university and the branding of the institution and the positioning of the institution. And what Smith was saying is that the universities who are in the big time college sports sweepstakes are literally having it both ways and they've gotten away with it. And we're still not talking honestly about that hypocrisy, the extent of the hypocrisy, and how all of these false ideals that have been served up to the public by some of the most powerful megaphones in American history have had the effect of minimizing the true value of the revenue-producing sport athletes to the institutional interests and the institutional stakeholders. And this is really, I'm kind of talking about this independent of all the outside commercial influences in the big-time sports industrial entertainment complex. I'm talking about it from the through the lens of the institutional university interests and, and the NCAA interests, and I guess the conference interests as well. And These storylines, these fable lines, have served to really undermine the progress of the athletes' rights movement because they still have incredible normative power. And so I want to talk just a few minutes about the leadership at Wisconsin-Madison and at Michigan, and I think I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but Rebecca Blank is I think leaving for Northwestern, so she'll be taking over the Northwestern job here. And Mary Sue Coleman at Michigan, she's an interim president. The former president left in some scandal, and she came back in. She had been president from 2002 to 2014, and is, and is considered to be one of the best uh, university presidents in in America, and is very well respected. Has an incredible resume. Both of these leaders have incredible resumes. But their fundamental orientation is to the status quo interests of the institutions, the NCAA, the Power Five, and then all of their corporate entanglements. That is their starting point, not with athletes' rights. So let me just real quickly go through Rebecca Blank's resume when it comes to her connection to big-time college sports. Back in 2018, during the Austin antitrust litigation, The NCAA called Rebecca Blank as a star witness. And both sides were doing that, trying to call in people who were going to spout the party line and try to influence the judge's thinking. I don't think that Judge Wilkin really cared too much for those types of witnesses. She wanted to hear from the experts and you know, she was very straightforward and, and kind of linear in, in her approach to the evidence that was presented. But Blank uh, is put up there and she is a human talking point for the NCAA. It was amateurism, student athlete, collegiate model, no pay for play. These athletes can be in place the talking points literally right down the line and she also in that testimony made some very strong comments and one of them was anti-name image and likeness and she said the current restrictions remember this is before there was any discussion about athletes getting meaningful name image and likeness Quote unquote, compensation. That began in 2019 through the Mark Walker bill, then the California bill. And and then the NCAA commandeered that process and used NIL as a Trojan horse to get in front of Congress and get these extraordinary protections and immunities that would have eliminated the athletes' rights movement. This is before that. And Blank was just, she had that line drawn in the sand and that these athletes weren't going to get a penny above their athletic scholarship and the full cost of, of attendance. And then she was named to the NCAA Division I Board of Directors, one of the most powerful seats in all of college sports. So she was an insider at the college sports regulatory level of the highest order. And soon after that, she was also named... To the NCAA Board of Governors. And so she was sitting on both of those bodies at the same time. One of these crossover representatives, and there were about 12 of these crossover seats. And I've talked a lot about that because it was just a a stunning conflict of interest to sit on those boards at the same time. But she, she was one of those 12 people, which makes her one of the 12 most powerful people in all of college sports. She's not just some interloper on these sports issues, she is a ground zero and has been for years. And then she took to the microphone in the Senate in September of 2020 in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee hearings led by Republican Senator Lamar Alexander, and she was, again, just a human talking point for everything that the NCAA and Power Five wanted, although she did make this uh, shift from her staunch opposition to name, image, and likeness in 2018 to all of a sudden claiming to be in favor of name, image, and likeness compensation but only within guardrails that protected all these institutional interests. That is a practical matter made the provision of any meaningful name, image, and likeness compensation impossible. How can you provide name, image, and likeness compensation within uh, guardrails that include the collegiate model, which by its very definition prohibits compensation. It was just an Orwellian absurdity. And, and the NCAA and Power Five engaged in that throughout their disingenuous campaign in the Senate in 2020 and actually into 2021. And then in March of 2021, the Washington Post published a story that uh, was really a bad look for Rebecca Blank and other Big Ten university presidents and chancellors. And that is that in their discussions about whether to go forward with fall football in, in August of, of 2020, And as those discussions were just getting underway, Rebecca Blank recommended that the discussions be taken out of the university setting and run through the Big Ten communication system. The Big Ten had invested in this really high-tech, protected, secure communication system that was based on the technology developed by NASDAQ, the the tech exchange, to preserve privacy and so Blank wanted all the discussions to be sent over there. And the Big Ten is a private entity, not a public entity. So these discussions wouldn't be subject to public records requests. And the, the Washington Post dug up some of the emails that were sent before the conversation was moved to the Big Ten portal. And boy, it didn't look good for Rebecca Blank. And uh, privacy experts who were quoted in, in Post article they said this is just a a blatant violation of public records laws and the blatant attempt to skirt around those laws. And so, Blank got caught and, and then she made a milk toast mea culpa in a public statement and there was supposed to be some kind of a follow-up investigation, I don't know if that ever occurred. And then all of a sudden, Blank kind of disappears from the landscape and the commentariat in big-time college sports, and uh, then you start hearing from Linda Livingstone, the president at Baylor. And I, I talked a bit about this Blank brouhaha in episode episode six titled Big Ten Secrets, and I've, I've talked about Linda Livingstone's role, and I think she assumed the mantle that uh, Blank had, had been carrying as a female university president who was spewing all of the NCAA Power Five friendly talking points, and I think there was some value in having that come from a female university president. But Blank is not a stranger to big time college sports and the values of big time college sports. And she relied on those values in her interactions through the governance process, through her testimony under oath to a federal court and her testimony under oath to the United States Senate. So where is she now when there is a values issue that is sitting right in her lap at at the institutional level and she remains silent? And I, I think the same is true for Mary Sue Coleman. Now, admittedly, she's in an in interim position and and maybe she just wants to tread water until they find a new president. So I, I think that that may be a factor in, in how she handles any hot button issues that come up while she's sitting in the captain's chair and, and doing the university and a really important service here uh, under the circumstances. But I want to just talk about her history and her relationship to college sports and the fact that she is as well positioned and uniquely situated as any institutional spokesperson to, to talk about the kind of issues that came up with this, this unfortunate event between Wisconsin and, and Michigan. But Coleman has a relationship to NCAA governance. She's been involved in governance at the highest level. She is actually now, technically, I think, still a member of the Board of Governors. She's an, quote unquote, independent member of the Board of Governors. And she was named to that position while she was not serving as a university president. She had retired from, from her work as a president. But I, I'm not sure if the new Board of Governors that was outlined through this constitutional makeover is in place yet But she's right there at ground zero at the decision-making level, and she was on the Constitution Committee as well. So she's sitting on this committee as an independent member of the NCAA Board of Governors, talking about the future of college sports and was instrumental in this constitutional makeover that I've talked so much about. So she is in a pretty good position to speak to issues, particularly at the values level, because so much of the work of this committee was supposed to run through NCAA, Power Five, and big-time college sports values, and the values of the institutional stakeholders, the universities, the conferences, and the NCAA. But we didn't hear boo from her with this Wisconsin-Michigan issue. She has a history of leadership with the Knight Commission. She served on the Knight Commission from 2000. 2004 and then in 2005 she was actually named as a trustee to the knight foundation the overarching foundation that created the the knight commission but in her work as a member of the knight commission on intercollegiate athletics she was really part of a group that has been advocating through a values-based lens for a regulatory model and a financial model in college sports that aligns with institutional interests and values and higher education interests and values. And I have talked about the Knight Commission uh, a lot in this podcast, and there is not much difference between the way they see the world and the way that the NCAA and Powell Five have seen the world at the propaganda level, and how they uh, externalize their values in par- as part of this amateur professional dilemma. And they don't speak the language of athletes' rights. Athletes' rights is a second language to those stakeholders. And then you also have her affiliation with the Association of American Universities, and, and the reason that's important... That organization is like a country club for the most prestigious research-oriented universities. And there are, I think, 65 schools that actually, coincidentally, it's the same number of schools as the Power Five have. But these are the heavy hitters in academia. They have a very elitist view of the the role of colleges and universities in higher education. And the institution was founded in 1900 and was influenced by the Ivies and then also by Johns Hopkins and the German model. And it's my belief that that sentiment is alive and well in 2022, but it is disguised because university presidents who have private disdain for the entire business of big-time college sports are benefiting enormously from it. And that goes directly to Ronald Smith's uh, amateur professional dilemma issue and University presidents are caught right in the middle of that. And when the institutional spokespeople came forward, like University of Michigan athletics director Ward Manuel, and then uh, Big Ten commissioner Kevin Warren, they made oblique references to the presidents. And so here's what Manuel said. He says, I'm aware of and watched the end of our men's basketball game. There's no excuse for any of our staff or student-athletes to get into a physical altercation with others regardless of instigating factors. I reached out and apologized to Chris McIntosh. He's the athletics director at Wisconsin. And Michigan President Mary Sue Coleman has reached out to the University of Wisconsin Chancellor Rebecca Blank to apologize for the totally unacceptable behavior. And I guess you could say, well, that's why we have athletics directors. That's why we have a conference commissioner. This is in their wheelhouse. And I would say yes to an extent, but given the values-based implication of what happened in this basketball game and the unique and powerful positions that Rebecca Blank and Mary Sue Coleman have and have had with respect to college sports at the regulatory level, at the financial level, at the values level, I think the absence of commentary from either of these leaders really is a problem. And I think it speaks to the dysfunction in the regulation of college sports, in the financial model of college sports, the incentives in college sports, and the disguised values in college sports. And so we have two of the most informed and powerful in-system decision makers in college sports refusing to speak to an issue that begged for an explanation and some commentary through a values-based lens. So what does that say? And again, I guess the answer to that's kind of in the eyes of the beholder. But to me, it says that we have a serious problem in terms of who is in charge of defining what college sports is and what it's going to look like going forward. And we have the same people who created the mess that exists right now in college sports, sitting in decision-making chairs and determining the direction of college sports. So uh, with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.